Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. I'm your host today, David Aarons. For most of my life and probably yours, I came to believe that life expectancy, like the progress of America, will continually increase and improve. We'll go from 79 this year and then we reach 80 years and 82 and ever forward. And that everyone more or less had about the same odds for a long life, except except for women getting a few more years than men. Now we've learned that our collective lifespans are in decline and that what we thought of as a national longevity rate is actually quite nuanced and that how long we live has a lot to do with social class, education, and so on. We're very fortunate today to have as our guest Dr. Patrick Remington. Dr. Remington is the leading researcher and author in the field of epidemiological research on health, social conditions, and how long we live. His pioneering work more than 20 years ago, called Wisconsin County's Health Rankings, was among the first works using data on health behavior, social determinants such as income and education, available health care, physical environment, and so on, and putting this together to determine its impact on how people feel and, of course, die. We'll learn the, we'll leave the discussion of the findings to Dr. Remington. Suffice to say that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation thought this, this project was such a significant contribution to public health that they expanded it to every county in the state. In addition to his work on social determinants of health, Dr. Remington was the deputy dean of UW School of Medicine and Public Health and is now a professor emeritus of medicine. For many decades, he's been a leading advocate of preventive health training and practice. Well, after the longest introduction in the history of a public affair, <laughs> I'd like to welcome Dr. Remington to a public affair. Thanks oh, for having me, David. Good to have you here. Let's just start with the beginning, which is, why is the problem of life expectancy important? You've described the life expectancy in one article as as a downstream and indicator. What did you mean by that? Well, I used the river metaphor to talk about our work in public health. Uh, if you think about a river flowing uh, through a, a community or out in the country, um, downstream is where things happen. It's where somebody falls in the river, they end up swimming and maybe struggling and, and, and drowning. And so, <clears throat> although it's important to help people as they struggle downriver, um, we have to think about what's happening upstream, why people are ending up in the river, are they falling in, being pushed in, um, what are the, in effect, river banks like in this river metaphor. And so, using health statistics, we consider things like health outcomes as downstream indicators, how long and how well you live. It's the product of all the things that happen upstream in our lives. Um, things like, you mentioned social determinants, rates of poverty, racism, housing, food insecurity, but also health behaviors, things like cigarette smoking, eating habits and exercise, as well as the quality of health care. Those are th factors that we can influence directly upstream, and then we look for improvements uh, and downstream health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So these are different tributaries also that are sort of creating the flow of the river and how we get to the bottom or yeah, it's a, uh, how quickly we get to the end. Yeah, of the, it's a nice way to think about it as tributaries. For example, your income, your education might be a tributary that flows directly to your health outcomes, but also it determines the quality of health care that, uh, that you may be able to access. So that's all, we like to 
sometimes call it a web of causation, but, but thinking about a pretty complex web of determinants, that's a word we use mm-hmm. in, in our work, things that determine health outcomes. And I once was at a conference when the speaker was asked a really tough question, which is, what's the goal of public health? And he paused for a moment and said, well, we need to assure conditions so that people can live long and healthy lives. And someone raised their hand and said, would you add all people? Uh, And he did. He said, (laughs) I'll modify it Mm -hmm. to say that so that all people can live a long and healthy life. Long and healthy lives are the health outcomes. So what are the conditions, those upstream factors that we need to assure that people have access to so that they can live healthy lifestyles, they can have access to quality health care, and live a long and healthy life. Well, yeah, I want to hold on to that phrase, assure conditions, that that's a role of public health, and um, sort of refer back to that um, later when we really talk about what, again, the role is um, of public health or even social institutions. Um, Now, Last year, there was quite a bit of news that the longevity of individuals had declined um, in the United States and perhaps worldwide, but it certainly got publicity in the United States. Um, uh, do you think it was just COVID or what were the other factors that had come into play here? Well, certainly COVID was, the, in effect, the catalyst. Or I, I like to think about it as a stress test. Um, somebody can be reason, seem to be in reasonably good health, um, <clears throat> but when you do a stress test, you learn that underlying factors like uh, narrowing of coronary arteries or hypertension or other forms of cardiovascular disease exist, and then you see signs that this person is not in such good health. And then you can intervene. COVID was a stress test for society. We knew that we have had health problems with social and economic disparities, with rates of obesity, with uh, uh, substance abuse and and, uh, opioid overdose. But when COVID came, those disparities were exacerbated. And uh, those were the people, as we often spoke, the people with chronic conditions or those uh, f- factors that increase their risk of getting hospitalized and dying from COVID, those really were the really the canary in the in the mine that uh, showed that we had disparities uh, and that they really came to bear. So I, I, I'd say in general, um, this country in particular failed that tra- test, both in the response to COVID, mm-hmm. um, but also in just demonstrating that we had underlying health disparities. Uh, in this country, and, and there also was the uh, the underlying problem of social communication, as well. I mean, which we'll we'll get to in terms of uh, another part of uh, uh, your work in public health education. Um, now, the sort of the national view of this um, became known as. Uh, the deaths by despair, and I think that even preceded uh, COVID, um, where two uh, English uh, epidemiologists um, wrote about sort of the decline of American health and and the decline of our longevity simply by despair. Um, uh, how how would you characterize that, really? Well, we actually followed. Uh, Case and Deaton's paper and did an analysis of the specific causes of death, um, and uh, the what we called it was the epidemic of despair. <clears throat> Those are the upstream determinants. Uh, if you think about people who may not be exercising or not be able to eat right, um, maybe using substances like cigarettes or, um, or drugs or opioids. Um, what are the upstream factors, the things that might push them to do those things? And despair is, a, I think, is a very common term that we all understand to mean that you're at wit's end. Um, you might be working two jobs. You might be a single 
parent um, or even in a relationship, but both working uh, and not making ends meet. And so that despair then can trigger um, unhealthy responses. It can also be related to not having enough money to afford health care, even though the Affordable Care Act has done a great job in increasing the number of people who have access to health care. It still comes at a cost, mm-hmm. and many people either choose or, or can't uh, afford right. those costs. So, so again, the despair that comes with that, uh, there is some research that shows that despair alone, that the stress and anxiety that you have with those circumstances can have a direct effect on your health. It increases levels of cortisol. It increases the risk of, of cardiovascular changes, of, of neurovascular changes. And so it has a direct impact on health. But a far greater impact is, is mediated through how you react to it. And if you well, find yourself mm-hmm. self-medicating to mm-hmm. deal with the despair through, with alcohol or other substances, or simply not paying attention to your diet, or maybe not going outside on a cold day like today, those responses, those behavioral responses to the despair actually uh, lead to more health than the direct health effects of right. despair alone. Right. Let me remind uh, listeners that this is a call-in show, and uh, you could discuss uh, these issues with Dr. Remington uh, about really the health of our community and the community's health uh, by calling 608-256-2001. Yeah, I, I, um, I appreciated the title of, of their book that you mentioned of uh, Deaths by Despair, and it didn't say Deaths by Depression, which makes it seem very individual and kind of personal, but uh, it's Deaths by Despair. And the future of capitalism, um, and you know, sort of the one or two liner that I picked out of it when I was going through this material um, by the authors uh, Deaton and Case, which really hit things in a nutshell. Um, capitalism, which over two centuries lifted cap- countless people out of poverty is now destroying the lives of blue-collar America. Uh, the healthcare system, and they say elsewhere, the healthcare system is primarily a tool for the redistribution of wealth from the poor and working class to a, quote, rapaciously wealthy class. That's um, quite a broad indictment, really, of of the our condition and going forward it's kind of it's really a despairing condition as to how do we get out of this loop well certainly those are tough words but they need to be said again the thinking about um the the stream upstream metaphor some diagnoses seem pretty straightforward a person maybe develops lung cancer and, and dies as a result you point to cigarette smoking and you have a diagnosis um, but there's a great deal of complexity as to cigarette smoking, for example, why the person started smoking, why they had trouble uh, quitting. Um, <clears throat> and, and that's a pretty straightforward health condition. If you think about uh, all of the uh, conditions like obesity, like um, uh, arthritis and mental illness, um, all of those have much more complex causes. And so when you think about that diagnosis, um, it's important to think about social diagnoses. And in fact, Case and Deaton have done that. And uh, certainly capitalism delivers um, a lot of benefit for people who uh, are able to benefit from the system, but it's at a cost. And uh, there's no question in my mind um, that many people have not benefited now in, in, in present day. Um, as all boats have not risen. And Mm -hmm. so those people who are struggling to stay behind, not not get ahead, but literally struggling and and falling further behind, are the the outcomes. Mm -hmm. That despair that they feel 
uh, is an outcome of a system that is not well designed. We don't have the safety net programs uh, as other social democracies do. Um, we know uh, capitalism is an imperfect social system, um, but other societies across the world seem to have designed safety net systems so that when it doesn't work, there's certain minimum wage provided, there's certain assurance to education, uh, to child care for all. And those safety net programs allow capitalism to function, uh, but function fairly. And so, uh, I, and they improve health. Because oh. because people are, as you said, um, in despair. People have increased cortisol and all other kinds of uh, biometric, uh, you know, adverse events uh, occur as a result of that. Um, so people have less of those things, and the life expectancy and the general health status improves over time. Well, and uh, uh, the paper that was recently published by uh, Stephen Wolf from Virginia Commonwealth University, uh, looked back 70 years, more than 70 years, and this decline of the American experiment um, has is not something just um, showed up in COVID or in the last uh, 10 or 20 years, but for decades, the U.S. has been slowly falling behind uh, other nations in ranking. And they they were they did a brilliant study, where in the past they compared the U.S. to 15 developed nations, and we were, were in fact I teach a case study where it's compared to 10 other developed nations, and we ranked uh, 11th out of 11. And you can only get to 11 if the, if you <laughs> compare to 11. <laughs> they looked at hundreds of countries and found that the rank of the U.S. has been declining consistently for the past 70 years. I think we're near 45 or 50 um, in rank. And these are not uh, just European nations. These are nations on all continents mm -hmm. um, who have designed their societies differently so that they deliver longer, healthier lives than our country does. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, we have a caller on the line. Uh, Mike has a question for Dr. Remington. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call today. Um, very interesting uh, topic you're talking about. Um, I recently read a book by uh, Ed Dowd, D-O-W-D, um, titled uh, Cause Unknown. And uh, Ed, uh, he, he examined excess mortality um, among young people um, in all the Western nations that where the data was available, especially in the UK, and found like a just an incredible jump in excess mortality among working age people in just the last three years. He also examined uh, through the UK numbers the amount of people that are now um, working age people who are now disabled and can't work. Hmm. Um, the title of the book is kind of misleading because uh, he made the case throughout the whole book that the countries um, that had got the most COVID vaccines is where this was occurring, and he made it clear that these young people were not dying from COVID itself, but were dying from something new. Mm. So, again, okay. thanks uh, thanks for letting me call in today and uh, a really good topic that you're discussing. Thanks, Mike. Do uh, you have a response uh, to that, Pat? I don't know the book, but I'll mm -hmm. be interested to follow up and, and look at it. Uh, I, I do think the, the concept of excess deaths is important, um, but... Could you explain a bit about what, what the meaning well, of Well, we can model, um, use our historical information to model what you would expect. And when you do that, you look at uh, death trends in, from... 2010 or right up to 2019, what would we have expected in 2020 is pretty confidently able to model that. We have great census data. We have uh, lots of uh, mortality data. And any deviation from that is uh, an increase is considered excess deaths. Uh, the, the concern that people had about people calling a COVID death not a real COVID death, it was due to cancer or some other condition, 
um, goes away because this does not look at causes. This simply looks at, compared to what we expected, how many people died. Um, and so clearly, you know, we've gotten to more than a million deaths in this country, and uh, this country has more excess deaths, again, modeled on existing data, than any other country in the world. So that that's a that's a fact from COVID. From COVID, yeah, yes, yeah. and in, 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 uh, since nineteen uh, since twenty twenty. Now, <clears throat> the concern I have, uh, I I have a, a a friend who sent me an article and showed that the uh, rates of vaccine administration paralleled uh, COVID excess deaths, and his claim, the source that he was citing, said that the excess deaths that we're seeing in the nation are associated with the vaccine. And that entirely, since it's so highly correlated, in fact, Mm -hmm. it was correlated, you know, the correlation coefficient of almost one, that as excess deaths went up, so did vaccine dosage. And that's the problem that uh, the, the association seems very plausible unless mm-hmm. you think about causation. <laughs> yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. I had to explain that association is not causation, mm-hmm. although tempting, uh, because these correlations can be nearly perfect. Mm-hmm. But obviously, in that case, the COVID-related deaths led to more vaccine, and mm-hmm. and, and there's ob- obviously no causal association. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, <coughs> the misinformation and the misconstruction of and conclusions from this last pandemic are never ending. Never ending. Yeah, I mean, I um, I um, work at the Capitol in my day job, and um, the number of bills that still come out um, attacking public health and uh, attacking what we know or ignoring what we know about uh, communicable disease uh, continues ever onward. Um, so let me just uh, get back a bit to um, the work and what we've learned from your work in in this project called Wisconsin Health Rankings. Um, uh, I was associated with it at the at the very onset of it, and I remember that um, uh, one of the things that uh, one of the sort of bullet points about it was that after analysis of all Wisconsin 72 counties, that rather than Wisconsin being one state of healthiness or unhealthiness or whatever, uh, that there was tremendous variation between counties and that the difference between the healthiest county and the least healthy county was greater than the healthiest state and the sickest state. I guess that's Vermont and Mississippi or something. Um, Since then, um, you've done dug deeper (laughs) into this uh, and that it's not just counties, uh, but it's communities, and I guess what sort of gave rise to this program was an article that you wrote about um, that we're continuing to fall behind, but particularly about um, your look at Milwaukee County, and um, and you, you want to discuss those findings? I thought that was uh, amazing. <clears throat> uh, well, certainly, um, I, I think in. In epidemiology, we use rates uh, and we look at populations as opposed to individual patients. Um, but one of the challenges when thinking about a population is to define its its uh, boundary or its border. And so it's important to look at all levels. So thinking about the U.S. in entirety, um, the U.S. is not the healthiest nation in the world. It's not the greatest country in the world. I, I think about the the uh, newsroom uh, clip that now seems to be playing a lot on social media about uh, the response to the young woman who asked that question. Um, <clears throat> but uh, we see variability within the states. So Mississippi, you're right. Uh, at present, I just looked at the data uh, before the show, uh, uh, ranks last in life expectancy. 
Hawaii actually ranks uh, the best. There's about 10 years of difference in life expectancy between the healthiest state and the least healthy. Well, then you go into a state like Wisconsin. We're about in the middle, a little better than average. Always. Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> just a little better. Um, and uh, within Wisconsin, we, we noticed that there was more variability within our 72 counties, in particular if you look at the city of Milwaukee separately. And so we did the county health rankings uh, in Wisconsin in beginning in about 2004. Um, and then in 2010, uh, RWJ funded this program uh, nationally. So we ranked all counties in all states and uh, c- and continued to look at the, that data. Um, but as communities began to think about their own county, they began to look within. And you can think about it county as a uh, as many different communities and they can be divided by municipality by you know city villages and towns they can be divided by zip code uh, or really finally by census tracts and uh, when you look at the data which is publicly available um, and you see tremendous differences as much variability for example within Milwaukee County as across the state and across the nation, even across the world. Mm-hmm. So right here mm-hmm. in our own backyard, certainly the it's not as significant in Dane County, but nearly every community has as much uh, uh, disparity within that community as we see across communities. And so I think it, there are solutions that need to come at the federal level to address broad federal issues at the state level where we know that certain state policies can improve health, but then at the community level, and how can communities that are prospering provide assistance or uh, partnerships with communities that are struggling? And I, I think that's really a model that all politicians should support, yeah. bringing, bringing the solutions really yeah. back to the people, back to the communities. And what, what were the differences in Milwaukee County? They were really pretty stark. Uh, yeah, and I in in my uh, editorial that I wrote I, I didn't name the county uh, the uh, zip code specifically I referred to them by number. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go to the website and see just Google CDC life expectancy by uh, within counties by uh, by uh, census tract, uh, you can see a difference uh, the bottom quintile, the bottom fifth ranges between 57 and 75 years. And the top ranges between 82 and 98. Mm-hmm. So tremendous difference in those uh, what we call quintiles. Yeah. You know, from as low as 57 years life expectancy. Imagine that. That's an average life expectancy within that census mm-hmm. tract. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a census tract with a life expectancy of 97.5. So, you know, Mm -hmm. 40-year difference Mm -hmm. in life expectancy. Again, an epidemiologist or a statistician would tell me there's error. These are small numbers. Well, you get the picture. But you get the picture. (laughs) Uh, 40-year difference, you know, almost twice the life expectancy um, just in one county looking across different neighborhoods. And I point out that that's not a function of genetics or biology. It's a function of how we organize society, how the, as we mentioned earlier, the conditions that are present in these communities that offer an opportunity for people to thrive, to live long and healthy lives. And we seem to be okay with that in Milwaukee County and Dane County and even across the state and rural areas to see these dramatic differences in really important outcomes like length and quality of life. Yeah, it's not just the length, of course, but as you note, that it's all the years leading up to it, and uh, these are you know quality of life uh, years. Um, let me remind listeners that uh, we're listening to a public affair. I'm David Aaron's, and we're talking today with Dr. Patrick Remington, who's a epidemiologist and a, a physician uh, who has studied. Uh, the health of Wisconsin and really the health of communities in Wisconsin for uh, many, many years. And uh, uh, let me just get to what, what do you, what do you, let me just, hold on a sec. Um, I sort of lost the 
drift here. Yeah, well, one of the uh, other pieces that I saw uh, leading up to this was um, a book by a British epidemiologist, uh, Michael Marmot, um, and he had a, he did a, a similar thing of of looking at um, not Milwaukee County, but he he describes uh, being on the Washington uh, Metro and taking three stops on the Metro and being in in terms of the health of the communities. He said, you know, sort of might as well be in Denmark and South Africa or something from. Uh, what the health of those communities are within a, a very sh- uh, short span and what gave rise to that. And part of what he talks about, and it's the title of the book, is it's the status syndrome. And and this relates to the whole sense of despair and and sort of the, the how what people's feelings are about themselves and how that happens. People don't just come up with this despairing uh, view of oneself. It, it's a lot of things uh, construct that. Well, certainly Michael Marmot is, one might say, maybe now the grandfather of social epidemiology. His studies were seminal in <clears throat> pointing out that social status. Uh, in Britain, you talk about um, class. Uh, and so based on uh, an individual's education and their occupation, you can categorize them, and it correlates perfectly with uh, length of life, uh, life expectancy. And as opposed to spurious um, associations, these have been shown in multiple research studies to be causally related, so that when you um, change someone's uh, social status through uh, social programs, um, their health outcomes improve. And so we know that's a causal association. <clears throat> I actually have a funny story about Michael Marmot. I met him at a conference. Um, there was a book signing. I had just published uh, a book that we edited on chronic disease, and he was there um, with his book. And uh, the line for his book went around the corner, and for my book, there was nobody there. So I <laughs> I got up and got to the end of the line uh, and and bought one of his books and it's signed. So um, he he certainly <clears throat> has been uh, pointing this out. And I, I think for me it's important work, uh, but we've known this for yeah. five decades. And so the, the question is how does a society respond to the causal relationship between social class and length and quality of life? Has uh, So looking at the... Uh, sort of the case study of Wisconsin, which you've uh, been at for about 20 years. Um, what's changed? Well, it's a great question. We, <clears throat> When we started ranking now 20 years ago, uh, people really weren't aware, um, at least not in the news media. I think healthcare providers and public health folks knew about these differences, but I think the general public and policymakers weren't aware there were such dramatic differences between the healthiest places and the least healthy places. Um, now, 20 years ago, the leadership of this program, in fact, is rethinking. Um, do we really need to continue to show uh, people where the healthiest places are and the least healthy places by ranking them? How do we move from that finding to solutions? And those are tough. Those require um, political action. Those really require um, redistribution of resources from those who have enough um, and to those who are struggling. And that's the political discussion uh, we're having. We know from looking around the world that countries that have uh, social democracies um, uh, fare better uh, by providing safety net programs and provide assuring conditions for all people uh, to be able to live a long and healthy life. Now, obviously, some people fall through the crack in those social democracies, but nowhere near the scale and magnitude of people who fall through the cracks in our country right here in Madison, probably not far from this radio station. We have people who are struggling, and yet solutions are really hard to find. 
Yes. Well, I think that some of the solutions, as you say, are known, which is the um, willingness or uh, you know capacity to implement uh, uh, that. Um, let me just uh, get to a, sort of a different point here about the issue of advocacy and the issue of speaking up. Uh, two years ago, during the uh, COVID pandemic, um, you were engaged in a sort of a public dispute with Senator Johnson um, uh, over a number of his public statements, uh, including his assertion that the COVID vaccine is making things worse, as you pointed out, and that masks were making things worse. Um, and there was, you know, you responded pretty readily to some of his attempts to provide misinformation to the public. Uh, why were you the only one to say anything about that? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you should ask the people. I, I, I thought there would, would be like a big outcry, a chorus of practitioners, public health people, just politicians, whatever. You know, my dry cleaner <laughs> saying, you know. Um, yeah, I think, uh, well, first of all, I focused on the evidence. Uh, so when I would get the call from a newspaper reporter, it was often uh, prefaced by, we need to do a fact check. And so uh, sometimes these statements were based on what we call preprint publications. These are not actually publications. They have not been reviewed, but they get shared broadly, and all of a sudden people believe them. Oh, you're talking now about the things that Johnson yeah. was relying on. Yeah, to make these, and so I look yeah. at the source of the evidence, and then I look at the science. Uh, a good example is, you know, if it's uh, simply an association people see with which there's no evidence that it's causal, then I'll state that's a mi misstatement. Um, uh, so, so I tried to focus on the evidence. So I, I would hope to think, uh, I would hope that I got the call because I've trained in medicine and public health and epidemiology. But the second question is, I think there were political motives in some of these statements, and you have to walk that line pretty carefully uh, when you know a sitting senator may have influence over funding, over you know other. Uh, political or financial issues. And so I, I tried to be really um, clear and, uh, and and focused on what do we know and if there's uncertainty to acknowledge it. I mean, early on in the, in the pandemic, I think there was uncertainty about the efficacy of uh, masks. There was uncertainty about our ability to develop a vaccine. Certainly, uh, we didn't know that the flattening the curve approach uh, would work. We didn't really know how COVID transmitted, whether it was airborne or mm -hmm. particle spread. Mm -hmm. uh, and I tried in all my uh, communications to acknowledge uncertainty. Um, some people find that to be a weakness in science when you say you don't know. I actually think yeah. it's a, a strength. And so, yeah. uh, and to admit that what you thought was the case was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I think that's maybe why I got the call. Um, I suspect that there's some other political issues and some uh, you know issues why people weren't speaking up. But I can't speak for them. <laughs> you can't speak for people who weren't speaking. Right. <laughs> it's a reasonable action. Um, now, your, your work, as you described, you know, this uh, river with... Um, uh, different tributaries or, or a web of of uh, influences that create this outcome of health. And it, in in the studies that you've done, you've had um, uh, the influence of of income or education or health behaviors, so smoking, drinking, eating, and so on, physical environment. And of course, um, access to healthcare. Um, do you, has it ever been determined what the percentages or 
how these things are feed into the the great river of of life that's a great question <laughs> i don't think i've had the opportunity to speak about that um yeah, so, so, sort of publicly but if you think about what characterizes a population that lives long and healthy lives um we find that those are populations that have a good foundation a good social economic foundation they have a good economy, good education system. Just think about some of the healthiest places you may have lived or visited. <clears throat> With that strong foundation, that's essential, really, um, for a healthy community, but it's not sufficient. So they also uh, have people who live healthy lifestyles, who don't uh, drink in excess, who don't smoke, who exercise and eat right. <clears throat> and so that's important. But those two things don't just come on their own. They have to be supported by an environment where you can do all of those things, and also an environment free of pollution and chemicals. And then finally, if if for you know some reason you get sick uh, or you need access to preventive care, you need a good health care system. And so to develop this county health rankings, we needed to, in a way, make our best guess as to what would the coefficients be, what, what would make up the whole pie, and when we, you say the coefficients, you mean like how much weight do how we how much give weight to do we give to ABC. social and economic factors, mm -hmm. right? And so <clears throat> the, we divided the pie into uh, forty percent due to uh, social and economic factors, thirty percent due to health behaviors, twenty percent due to health care, and ten percent due to the environment. Now, the minute I say that, I'm wrong in many places. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a hurricane, it's all about the environment. Uh, if you have a, a, a very affluent community, it might be all about um, you know, access to health care because you have a great economic system. But that's an average, and it allows us to have a conversation. Uh, and uh, again, I try to I've said we shouldn't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. And it's a good model. In fact, it's gotten a lot of publicity. It's called the Wisconsin County Health Rankings or the County Health Rankings Model for Health. And uh, it's also been criticized quite severely in the academic literature as being wrong and short-sighted and not complete and comprehensive, even correct. Um, and I've debated that a little bit mm -hmm. in in the literature. Um, to me, it works as a catalyst for a conversation. And then we move on, because it's certainly not true in every place, and or maybe even in any place. But it allows you to think, how do we as a community achieve health if we don't have a good jobs, and if we don't have a good education system, and good child care, and and, and how do we motivate our community to be live healthier lifestyles if that community is not designed to do that? Yeah. Um, what's notable about, you know, sort of how you um, uh, provided weights to these things, uh, different factors, what's striking to me is the relatively low weight uh, to health care, that it's only 20% of the overall package um, and that one would think that boy that's why you're healthy is is because you have I mean that's sort of the, the general notion of it and that's why we spend uh, you know 18 percent or whatever of our gross national product on health it's health care yep yeah well I'll uh, you know again it <clears throat> the first time you've heard it here first, when we ran, uh, developed our first rankings, when you were involved in 2004, um, we had a model which gave healthcare 10%. Oh. <clears throat> we thought that it was, you know, if you have a healthy community, uh, if you, uh, uh, with good social and economic factors and people are living healthy lifestyles and the community is designed well, then the healthcare system really should uh, you know, do preventive services and take care of those few sick people who, who get sick. And so it contributes very little to a healthy community. Um, <clears throat> but the feedback we got in that first year was that health providers said, well, if we're only 10%, why should we get involved? And as arbitrary as it may seem, and then a paper did come out that modeled health variability of health that showed it was 
perhaps 20 or 25% as a coefficient. So we simply came back to the drawing board and said, okay, when we do this nationally, we will change it to 20%. But again, it's, you know, it, it, it depends on the healthcare system that you envision. Um, if it's a healthcare system that few can access, that's right. high cost. So it's the kind of healthcare <clears throat> yeah. system that. So sort of the there are weights within absolutely that, um, such as uh, are kids immunized or yeah. if it's uh, a healthcare system that's highly integrated with social uh, uh, healthcare social health systems. Um, and uh, and communicates well with public health, then it could be a main driver and be a principal determinant of the health of a community. But if it's really sickness oriented, high cost, ICU beds, access, yeah. ICU beds, mm-hmm. um, then it's going to have very little impact on the overall health of a community. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we've been talking to uh, Dr. Patrick Remington, who's a uh, obviously a, a health researcher and uh, physician and. Uh, uh, Meredith's professor at uh, UW Medical School, School of Medicine and Public Health, um, uh, who's worked on issues pertaining to um, the health of Wisconsin and um, and the nation as a whole. Um, now, in one of your last things that, that I've read um, uh, about this declining health expectancy and declining life expectancy in the U.S., you sort of take issue with, um, uh, I guess, other practitioners or other academics for simply um, uh, reciting the data and not looking at how did this data come about. Uh, what are the social conditions? Have you gotten uh, feedback on that or um, uh, many responses to that? Well, again, I think the challenge in all of our work in public health um, has been to move from our assessment function, which is an important function of public health, to do assessments, uh, to understand what the health of a community is, um, to policy and action. And I, I think that's the been the biggest challenge. It's not in the data. I, I recall when I joined the university um, that some colleagues were working on very sophisticated models that looked at health-adjusted life expectancy or quality-adjusted yeah, right. life years, mm-hmm. Hallies, Dallies, and Qualies. And, mm-hmm. and I was always under the assumption that looking at a death rate was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in the last 20 years we've learned that well, we don't even respond to differences in death rates. Um, Health-adjusted quality years and disability-adjusted life years, they're great measures. They point out the importance of issues like mental illness and arthritis that and hypertension that don't necessarily lead to death right away but create a great burden. Yeah. But I think we have had so much information uh, at hand that we have not responded to. So that's my goal yeah. in, in my retirement <laughs> and in my em- emeritus role is to try and make people care about the data uh, by talking about solutions. Uh, let's listen to a caller. Fawn is on the line. Uh, Hello. Hello, Fawn. How are you? Hi, I'm great. And you know what? I appreciate this discussion. I do not dispute a word I've heard you say, doctor. Um, I haven't heard every single word you said, but I don't dispute the ones I've heard. And um, I have a question because I this thing about excess mortality, um, I think it's a, a really salient way to kind of go back and, you know, retrospectively kind of guess at what happened and draw some conclusions, you know, or tweak theories. And so one of them is that um, one big driver of mortality is low vitamin D rates. There have been some studies showing that like correlating vitamin D um, blood levels with mortality in hospitals and so forth. In other countries, these stories, uh, studies have been conducted. And um, I note that, for example, Governor Scott from Florida, he was rather proud of himself for opening the beaches and encouraging people to go outside and get sunshine during the pandemic. Whereas Governor Newsom of California, they had very strict lockdowns 
and people were not able to get outside as much. And apparently they had higher mortality rates there. And so I wondered if you had any comments to that, um, to that you know, uh, set of evidence or yeah. data. Interesting point. Well, we could talk a lot about vitamin D, uh, use of sunscreen, being in the sun. Uh, I would put this into the category of science that is uh, complicated and emerging. Um, but, but, the, but the caller makes an important point. We shouldn't think that we know everything. Um, the minute we do, we're surprised by our ignorance. Um, think about what it will be like looking back in 2050 or 2080 uh, at how little we knew about health. I think that vitamin D is going to turn out to be a really important predictor of health and the complexity of how that's determined through sunlight naturally produced through uh, supplements uh, will be important. But, I, but it really pales in comparison uh, at present, again, as far as we know, to the leading causes of death, and I haven't mentioned that, that why has life expectancy dropped? COVID is one reason, but opioid overdoses, suicide, obesity-related health conditions like liver disease and heart disease, yeah. those are the yeah. leading killers. Murder. Yeah. Uh, those are what mm-hmm. the outcomes that are leading to the loss of life uh, and loss of healthy years of life. But for those people who are living a healthy lifestyle, who have, you know, have a good job and, and uh, access to education in a community, uh, then I, I think, and aren't smoking and have all the things in, in, in order, then you can begin thinking about, well, vitamin D and maybe as a supplement, maybe by getting a bit more healthy sun exposure. Um, those are important determinants, but again, they're they're really to me um, afterthoughts when we need to focus on what's really killing people at yeah. such young ages. Yeah, I mean, but there may be other sort of secondary effects, not just taking vitamin D, but I think the example that Forn gave of sort of being outside and getting sun, and just what a lifts moods. Um, yes, no uh, question. Yeah, when, yeah, and, yeah, and and again, that's emerging evidence about the importance of. Um, feeling well and uh, and its effect, a direct uh, effect on health. Uh, so so again, I, I would call that emerging research and important to sort of look to credible sources for evidence on that. Um, and again, we don't do as good a job in science for things that are free and easy to get, like sunlight and uh, vitamin D. We tend to study, put our resources into medicines that will make a company a lot of money. Right, take the pill. Take the pill, oh, yeah. and, and everything will be better. <laughs> as opposed to, you know, eating vegetables and exercising and being outside right. with healthy dose of sunlight. Yeah, well, that's a a, a good note to end with. Uh, uh, Dr. Remington is a preventive medicine specialist, and um, this has been a public affair. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Patrick Remington for sharing his thoughts and knowledge on these issues. Um, we hope you'll be able to be back in the not-so-distant future. I also want to thank uh, Jade Is- Isiri Ramos, our producer. Thank you, Jade. <laughs> uh, our engineer, John, and receptionist, Steve, and the director of Wart News Department, Shelley Pittman. Coming up is Letters and Politics with Mitch Jensrick. Have a great day, and we'll talk soon. Bye. Send you merry go round it. By the KKK police the streets by blood hound.